Amen. I remember the first time I ever sang that chorus, Oh, the Blood of Jesus, was in Jamaica. We were, had a mission team from Wake Chapel Church down there. Bob is shaking his head. He was probably there that night. One of the leaders uh, in the group uh, wanted to teach us a chorus. I had never heard it before, I don't think, and uh, have loved it ever since and really love hearing my church family sing it. Beautiful singing. Good to have visitors with us. Welcome to everyone. We may have some folks who are live streaming with us. We've got some folks in the overflow room I saw earlier. And just a word for those who may be visiting with us or new to Wake Chapel. We share together in the Lord's table the first Sunday in January, April, July, and October. And believe it or not, we're in October already. This is October the 1st, and we're going to share together around the Lord's table and in preparing our hearts and our minds to do that. I want to read a passage first from the New Testament. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bible with you and would like to turn there with me, please. We'll be reading some from that passage. And then a little bit later, I want to read a passage from the Old Testament. Let me read first from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to start down at verse 23, and we'll read down through verse <clears throat> 29. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day morning, and Father, we thank you for this time that we are gathering around the Lord's table to remember. Father, we pray that you would bless our time in your word, open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us, and bless as we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. I think sharing together around the Lord's table gives us, uh, for one thing, an opportunity to take a look in, in five directions. First of all, to take a look back and to remember. And we read the words of Jesus here. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Our faith is rooted in actual events that took place in time-space history. It's one of the neat things about Christianity. Our faith is rooted in actual events that took place. It happened nearly 2,000 years ago outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But it happened for us. Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And what happened to Christ on the cross is part of recorded history, but it's not impersonal history. He died for us. Take a look back and remember. It also gives us an opportunity to take a look up and say thank you. I love these words that Paul gave us in verse 24, and when talking about Jesus, and when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I think it's important for, for me to remind us that this is the Lord's table. I'm not the host. Our deacons are not the host. Jesus Christ is the host. It's His table, and He wants His people to enjoy fellowship with Him. Take a look up and say thank you for what you have done for us. I think it also gives us an opportunity to take a look around, take a look outward. I love these verses that are back in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians that, that are still talking about sharing around the Lord's table, but listen to, to these uh, two verses, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Then listen to verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You know, God calls us to be in fellowship with Himself. Can you think of anything more amazing than that? But the Lord also calls us, when He calls us to be in fellowship with Himself, He calls us to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Take a look around. We're sharing together, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the one bread. We share a common table. Child of God, you are a part of the body of Christ. And this is the Lord's table. It's for the Lord's people. It's for the followers of Jesus. And at this time, I just want to remind perhaps visitors who are with us, that you don't have to be a member at Wake Chapel to partake. But I will remind you that this is for those who are trusting and following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord's table, and He serves His people. But also the Lord's table, I think, gives us an opportunity to take a look forward. Time is moving on. Take a look forward. I love these words also in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The observance of the communion table looks forward to the day when the Lord will come again for His followers. At that time, we won't need this ordinance anymore. But until that day, the table reminds, it calls upon us to remember what Jesus has done, and it keeps our hope focused on what He's going to do. He's coming again for His people. And then there's, there's another look. I think the, the Lord's table gives us an opportunity for and a responsibility for, and that's to look inward. Listen to these two verses. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Lord's table calls for us to take a look inward, to examine ourselves. Some of the Corinthians to whom Paul was writing were partaking of, of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. They were being irreverent. They were being self-centered. They were not properly focusing on the purpose of the meal. Partaking of the Lord's Supper is a time for examination, a time for appreciating and then appropriating afresh and anew what Jesus has accomplished for His people on the cross. Now, in order to help us take a look back and take a look up, take a look around, take a look forward, and to take a look inward, I want to look at another passage in the Old Testament. And I think this will help us to remember the Lord. I started thinking about this passage a couple of weeks ago um, during our recent trip to Israel. And I see some of the folks have survived and are still with us from that trip and with smiles on their faces. But I started thinking more about this passage during that trip after we visited a place called Qumran, down east of the Dead Sea, and after we saw the caves that are there where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered back in 1947, an amazing discovery. And we're still reeling and reaping the wonderful benefits from those scrolls. I don't know if you knew this, but among the fragments of writings that were discovered in those uh, clay jars in, at Qumran in those caves were fragments from every book of the Bible except for one. And there was one scroll that contained almost a complete book of the Old Testament. And believe it or not, that scroll was 24 feet long. So, you know it was a big book in the Old Testament. And it's the book we're going to be reading from. I want to read a chapter from the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn over to Isaiah. And I believe this chapter, chapter helps us to remember the Lord Jesus and what He has done. 
But before we read from that chapter, I want want you to think with me a little bit about where that chapter is located in that long book of Isaiah and the purpose behind that chapter in the book of Isaiah. Most of you know this, that originally the books of the Bible did not have chapter and verse divisions. Those scrolls in in the pots at uh, the caves at Qumran did not have chapter verse divisions. That came later. But in the providence of God, chapter verse divisions were added to help us in our study of Scripture. And it's interesting to me that in God's providence, Isaiah would end up having 66 chapters. Think about it. There's 66 books in the Bible. Isaiah has 66 chapters. There are 39 books in the Old Testament of the Bible. There are 27 books in the New Testament of the Bible. And as our Bible divides up into those two sections, Old Testament and New Testament, 39 and 27, guess what? The book of Isaiah naturally divides into the two sections of 39 chapters and 27 chapters. We could spend some time looking at that amazing thing in God's providence. And I want you to see that also in the 27 chapters that make up the second part of Isaiah, it naturally divides into three sections of nine chapters each. Three times nine, still 27, isn't it? Yeah. And it really does naturally divide. I want you to see how it naturally divides that way. Look in Isaiah, verse, excuse me, chapter 48, verse 22. This is the last verse of the first section of nine chapters in the last part of Isaiah. And we read these words. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now go over to chapter 57. I hear leaves rattling in your Bibles. That's a good thing. Chapter 57, down at verse 21. This is the last verse of the second group of nine chapters. And what does that verse say? There is no peace, says the Lord, says my God, for the wicked. Now it may not sound like a very uplifting way to end those two sections of nine chapters, but it's realistic. It's true, and it's real. There is no peace, says my God to the wicked. Now, if you're in Israel, if you travel to Israel, you'll probably hear a Hebrew word that those of you this morning, most of you know this Hebrew word and have never been to Israel. And it's the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. It's almost like a greeting sometimes. But this word shalom, and we read it here, there is no shalom, says my God for the wicked. It's it's a rich word that, that means more than just an inner tranquility. It means well-being, just total well-being. One guy has said this about this word shalom. He said it's the Bible's shorthand term for a flourishing creation that God intended when he first made it. A creation that was flourishing, experiencing 
total well-being. And then we started looking last week in chapter 3 of Genesis at the fall. Someone else said the fall was the vandalizing of shalom. Taking away that well-being. Taking away that flourishing. Taking away that peace. And there is the result of alienation and sin. And all the results. Now look at the last verse of uh, Isaiah. That's the, the verse that ends the, the last nine chapters, of course. And it's chapter 66, verse 24. And we read these words. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Again, doesn't sound like a very uplifting way to end a book but a realistic way to end the book. Those who have rebelled, there will be the result of sin. And these three verses that end each of these nine chapter divisions, they point out to us and they remind us of the tragic presence of sin in the world, the awful results of sin and wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. These verses remind me that I'm a broken man living in a broken world. And they remind us this morning of the need for a Savior, for a Deliverer. And guess what? The middle chapter of that middle section of nine chapters in the second half of Isaiah, guess what? The middle chapter is in that 27-chapter division of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 53. There's the Savior. There's the Prince of Shalom that God promised would come. I want you to look, and we're going to read through this chapter as we prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's table Also in the second half of Isaiah, there are four poems. You know, there's a lot of poetry in the Bible. And they're referred to as servant songs. There are four of them. We won't look at where the other three are this morning. But God promised in these four servant songs that He would send a deliverer. That He would send a Savior for the people of Israel, and for the whole world. And that includes Fuquay Varina, the ends of the earth. And all four of these servant songs describe the nature, the character, and the work of this coming servant. And Isaiah 53 is part of the last and the longest servant song. We're not going to sing it, but we're going to read it. I wouldn't know how to sing it. There have been tons of songs written on these verses. And this uh, 
psalm begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and there are five sections of three verses each. And it starts out, Behold my servant. Let's remember him this morning. Let's think about Jesus. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now in these three short verses, we're introduced to amazing mystery. And we're confronted with a contrast in the life and work of this coming servant. His exaltation, but also his humiliation. Kind of seems in some ways incongruent. But we're also confronted with the worldwide impact that this coming servant was going to have. This servant to come is the most important person who has ever lived on planet earth. But when we come to the next three verses in chapter 53, we see that this servant is misunderstood, he's despised, and he's rejected. Let's read those three verses in Isaiah 53, and let's remember Jesus. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This coming servant who was sent by God to be the, the deliverer and the Savior, did not meet the stereotype that many expected and that many wanted. And these verses, it's amazing, these verses point out to us that there was no particular features about him to draw us to him. And it seems that he was full of his own problems. A man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs, some may be tempted to say, he was not among the winners. And how can a loser deliver other losers? To many, he was not impressive. He was not what they expected. They did not esteem him. Rather, they despised him and they rejected him. And this reminds me of two verses in John 1. He was in the world... And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
This challenges my heart as I prepare to share in the Lord's table this morning. What do I think of Jesus Christ? What do you think of Jesus Christ? What comes into your mind as you think of Him? How much do I value knowing Him? How much do you value knowing Him? Are you ashamed of mentioning His name in a crowd? And if we are, why? As we come to the next section of three verses, it's really interesting to me that he starts in verse 4 and he picks on, up on two words that he mentioned in verse 3. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And in this next section, we see explained to us why this suffering servant, why this man of sorrows, why this one who is acquainted with grief, why he suffered and what his sufferings were all about. His sufferings are explained to us. Let's read those verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's the two words, griefs and sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We sang it just a minute ago. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He did not suffer merely because of the sins of people. He did not suffer merely with people, but he suffered for people. He suffered in the place of people. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was not pierced for his transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was not pierced, crushed. He was not crushed for his iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, and crushed for no sins of his own, but for ours. And look at that phrase in that verse uh, 5. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 5 at the very end. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what? Shalom. That brought us peace. He suffered for His people. He suffered for us. And because of that, we can be delivered from the tragic results of sin. And I love the next section of this song, verses 7, 8, and 9, because they show us this innocent servant's attitude who was suffering for others unto death. 
He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He died willingly. He died voluntarily. He died for the transgressions of others. And he did it even though he himself was righteous completely. We see his submission even under unjust treatment. And the injustice is not something that has been done to him by a corrupt legal system, but the real injustice is that he is suffering in the place of others who should be suffering. But he's taking our place. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember that for our sake, God has made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now up to this point in this poem, in this song, it may appear on many levels like a very tragic ending. An innocent human being falsely accused unjustly condemned, dying in the place of others, executed at around 33 years old, no children, no descendants, naturally. But this final section of the song sets the record straight. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes, when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here at the end of this song, we see the Lord's perspective on the servant. And we see the servant, suffering servant, is exalted in victory. And nothing that happened to him in verses 1 through 9 were an accident in history. It was all the will of the Lord. It was the plan of God. And these verses demonstrate to me and to you this morning that the death of the servant was not a tragic mistake. His death was to justify many and to bring honor and glory to the servant, and to bring multitudes of others to share glory with him.
This servant who was despised, who was esteemed not as very important, this servant who was rejected, he was actually the one that provided the most important thing that we all need this morning. Cleansing from sin. And we see in these three verses, he is exalted. The servant is exalted to the highest heaven, not because he was humiliated, although he was. Not because he suffered unjustly, although he did. He was exalted to the highest heaven, not because he did it voluntarily, although he did that too. But he is exalted to the highest heaven because it was all in order to take away the sin of those who trust him and to bring them home to be with him. These verses remind me of a passage in the New Testament in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that every knee should bow, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's remember this morning the wonderful true story. It's not over yet. It's still going on. And we're doing this remembering what He has done but the best is yet to come. In these last three verses, we read the words, He will see His offspring. His offspring. He died to bring many sons to glory with Him. He wanted... And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit wanted a multitude of others to join the party and to share in the glory. And to do it, the Father sent the Son. The Son willingly came. And the Son died. And these verses, last three verses, also say, He will be satisfied. He will be satisfied. That's what I meant to say. I love that little phrase, and this is my Father's world. Jesus who died will be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. Perfect shalom will be experienced by God's people 
for all eternity. You talk about flourishing. You talk about well-being. But it's all because of what he did. The Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, we read about in Isaiah 9, by the way, has brought us peace. That peace will be fully experienced when he comes. And when he comes, his trusting people will be satisfied. Until he comes, we remember him. Before the deacons come to service this morning, I'm going to give us a few moments just to go to the Lord and to pray and to take a look inward, confess our sins. We've seen how serious God takes them. It took the blood of Christ to solve that problem. Take a moment to confess our sins. And maybe take a moment silently to yourself to say, thank you, thank you. Thank you for what you've given me now. You've given us a taste of shalom now, but it's not perfect peace. That's still coming. But he's given us a down payment on it now. But more is coming when the peace of shalom returns. And while you're praying silently, and I'm going to ask Trudy to, to play softly while you're praying, I want you to remember this thing, especially as you confess your sins. Remember that your hope lives not because you are not a sinner, but because you are a sinner for whom Christ died. Let's pray together.